0: Tonight we're in chapter 60 of Isaiah, and the title of the lesson is Zion Glorified. Zion Glorified. I wanted to read just a little bit here from a book on Isaiah. This is from Brian Bayer, and he kind of sets up the last several chapters of Isaiah as we kind of bring it to a conclusion. And this is what he writes in his study. He says, As we have studied Isaiah's book, we have seen images that would have filled Isaiah and his hearers with wonder and excitement. God would judge their enemies and rescue his people. He would establish his kingdom forever. Jerusalem would become a focal point of God's redemptive purpose. God's servant, the Messiah, would triumphantly complete his ministry and receive his eternal reward. Many may have wondered if the good news that Isaiah proclaimed could really be that good. As the prophet concluded his book, he proclaimed many themes, some of which he had already announced. Zion's exaltation and marriage to God, God's anointed one, Jerusalem's rebuilding, God's final judgment of sin, God's glory among the nations and god 's creation of new heavens and a new earth all appeared as Isaiah directed his prophetic drama to a grand finale so he that's his kind of uh, kind of setting up the last few chapters and reminding us of some of the great themes that are to come in the next six or seven chapters and so what we 've seen and especially in the second half of Isaiah from chapter forty onward is that it seems to be more building towards a more climactic conclusion of of God's people restored, God's people blessed, and God's glory filling the earth. And chapter 60 fits into that, that overall theme. And so as we look at chapter 60 tonight, we're going to see an emphasis on Zion being the center of God's activity and the place where God is going to bless his people and where he will be glorified first thing that we see in the first couple of verses of chapter 60 is the nations will see God's glory. And what's interesting about Isaiah chapter 60 and onward, as we get moved toward the end of the book, is that it seems like Isaiah's vision is getting bigger and bigger in terms of uh, inclusion of the nations in God's program. And we see here that the nations are going to be included in this opportunity to see the glory of God. In verse one, he says, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Uh, It's a very famous verse in Isaiah. Many of us know that verse. And it's, it's a beautiful verse that reminds us of both the light and the glory of the Lord. And it's a great contrast, isn't it, to some of the days of judgment. That, that Israel had walked through. They had been under the chastening hand of the Lord. They had gone into exile in Babylon. But now Isaiah says to them, there's a time of light that's coming. And it's interesting, isn't it, how the Bible brings us these contrasts between light and darkness, between good and evil, between hardship and blessing. And we see some of those contrasts here in Isaiah chapter 60 So they had been in a time of darkness, but now they're going to be in a time of light. And that light that they're going to experience is not a worldly light, but it's the light of God's glory among them. Verse 2 says, see, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. So here he's making a distinction between God's people and the rest of the world. And in leading up to this point, leading up to this prophecy, it's almost as if the situation had been reversed of what verse 2 is describing. It's almost as if uh, Israel had been in darkness, and the people who were oppressing them were the ones in power and the ones in the light. But what Isaiah is telling them now is that when God comes to the rescue of his people, that's going to be reversed. And the peoples who have been the enemies of God, that have opposed you, that have oppressed you, they're going to be in darkness. But you're going to be in light. And the light of God is going to be on you. Verse 3, it says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So, God's God's light is going to shine on his people with Jerusalem, Zion being the center of that. And that light is going to be a draw to the world that they will come and they will seek that light with God's people being at the center of the attention. Again, very opposite of what it has been. They've been a beaten down, oppressed people but they're going to be the centerpiece of God's plan and nations are going to come there seeking the glory of God. And a lot of what Isaiah says here in chapter 60 is I think fully fulfilled at the end of time. When we see the, the writer John in revelation, draw out many of this, many of these verses and some of the same language and point to the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, uh, a a new heavens and a new earth. And indeed, it's going to be that all of the nations are going to be drawn to that place, to that place where God's light is. And so God's glory is going to be seen not only by Israel, but also by the nations because they will come to it. And then in verses 4 through 16, we see God describing a, a renewal of Jerusalem's blessings and a renewal of population of wealth and really of their, even their relationship and their standing with their neighbors around them, with the world around them. And so verse four, we see a, a blessing, a renewal of Jerusalem's population. Verse four, it says, lift up your eyes and look about you all assemble and come to you your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. And this is probably a reference to return from exile in which Jerusalem had been abandoned and broken down, but God is going to summon his people back. And as his people come home again, Jerusalem's population is going to be restored. And not only at the beginning with their initial return from exile from Babylon, but also there's going to be a, a continual draw for God's scattered peoples to come home to Jerusalem. And ultimately that's going to be fulfilled in the end where, for, for example, in Matthew 24, Jesus says he's going to send out his angels and he will gather his elect from the four winds of, of the earth meaning all four directions, north, south, east, west, and he's going to draw them home. And so this is going to be the place where God's people are. Then we see a a renewal, a blessing of Jerusalem's wealth, uh, which basically shows God's care and his kindness and his blessing on his people. And so nations would bring their wealth to Israel from land and sea. Verse 5 says, then you will look, and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Why? Because Jerusalem is going to be the center of God's program. And not only Israel, but other nations who come to see the true God, they will bring with them everything that they have as well. And Jerusalem will become a place that is no longer empty and broken down, but a place that is full and thriving. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And uh, verse 7 mentions some other regions. Uh, All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you, the rams of Nebayot will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Now, many of these places are not places that we're familiar with today, at least in terms of their biblical names. But the regions that these places are identifying are really very close to Israel. Most of them, from what we can tell, appear to be what is today modern Saudi Arabia and maybe a little bit north of that, like uh, Syria and Jordan. So kind of the, the areas east and south of the Jordan River. So over to the east, I guess I'm looking at it from my perspective, but east of the Jordan River and then south on down to the regions of Saudi Arabia. And the point is, is that Israel is going to be blessed by both its immediate and also a little bit more farther away neighbors. And they're going to desire to come to this place. It's interesting that he mentions gold and incense, uh, frankincense and gold. Because we see, I think, a, a, a fulfillment, maybe a partial fulfillment of this prophecy when you have representatives of nations coming from afar, right? To bring gold and frankincense to Jesus as he's lying in a manger in Bethlehem. So that's kind of like a foretaste, I think, of the ultimate end of all of everything coming to the Lord and, and his people. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see the Lord glorifying, raising up his people. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests, Surely the islands look to me in the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. So in verses six and seven, we saw some of the the easterly and and southern neighbors of Israel. When he mentions Tarshish, we're probably talking about Spain, which is the opposite direction on the Mediterranean sea. And so he says, basically that was the edge of the known world. That's why Jonah wanted to run there. Take me to Tarshish. I don't want to go to Nineveh. And so basically Isaiah is saying from, from the furthest extremes, East and West, North and South, God is going to bring his children home. And when he brings his children home, there will also come blessing and wealth and provision. And he's going to make his people prosperous. And then we see in verses 10 through 16, Jerusalem's relationship with other nations, which in Isaiah's time was not good because Jerusalem was either a servant of other nations paying tribute to them, or it was in war with other nations. And ultimately, Babylon crushed it and took it into exile. And so Jerusalem's relationship with other nations was a tumultuous one in Isaiah's day. But he's looking to a time now after exile, when Jerusalem will rise to glory again, and it will have a good relationship with the nations, but a superior one in which the nations are now desiring to come to it. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their Kings will serve you. So it is interesting that when, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, gave permission for the Israelites to go home, that he also gave a provision for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Uh, we see in Ezra the, the provision of foreign powers to rebuild the temple and in Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And so this was fulfilled in the near term when the walls and the the temple of Jerusalem were rebuilt. But I think this is also still pointing to something even greater beyond that. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. And that's contrasting the Lord's heavy hand of judgment in bringing them into exile, but now his hand of mercy in bringing them out of exile and restoring them. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. Again, this is why I think that ultimately we have to look beyond the immediate fulfillment of return from exile to something even greater to come at the end of days, because it describes almost a global draw to Jerusalem. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. So, clear distinction. You will either come to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord, bringing your gifts with you, Or if you will not recognize the glory of the Lord, then you will be destroyed. It is a picture of, I think, the final judgment in a very clear distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. And he says he's going to glorify his sanctuary as a place for his feet. And I think ultimately that's going to be at the end of time when Jesus returns. But you could also see an initial fulfillment of it when Jesus steps foot in the temple. in in the Gospels. And he comes to make that place glorious with his presence. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So again, reversal. Those who oppressed you will now come in service to you. Although you have been forsaken and hated, With no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Now, some of this is very poetic, isn't it? It's using imagery, using symbolism. But the images that Isaiah is describing here describe a time of peace, a time of restoration. Uh, A time of prosperity, a time in which God's full blessing is on his people. And the nations are coming to it because of God's blessing on his people. They're coming to see what God is doing, this great thing. And then in the last few verses, we see God's special blessing that rests on his people. God's special blessing that rests on his people. We see God's righteous and just administration in verses 17 and 18. He says, instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. In other words, it's just, these are symbols. These are metaphors of trading in one thing for something better. It's it's God blessing and increasing the glory and the blessing of his people. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So no more a time of war, no more defeat, but now a place of peace and salvation. So a good, a righteous, a just administration, everlasting light. In verses 19 and 20, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. That sounds very uh, revelation-esque, doesn't it? Uh, We see that in Revelation 21 and 22 that John describes we're no longer going to need the sun there. Why? Because the glory of the Lord will be its light. Verse 20, your sun will never set again. Your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Again, light being a metaphor for salvation and goodness and righteousness. Everlasting light is everlasting righteousness, everlasting peace, everlasting goodness. And it will be a blessed people. Then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. Let me just stop there and think about that. That to me must be describing the full fulfillment at the end of days, because it's describing a place in which all of the people are righteous. The only place where that can be is in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. It is, it is the place where all righteousness dwells, where sin is no longer only defeated in terms of its power, but it is put away from us even in terms of its presence. That it is completely gone in the new heavens and the new earth. Your people will be all righteous and they will endure, enjoy that forever. They're the shoot that I have planted, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. Remember back earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, when God described a shoot, that he would plant in the land of Judah, in Jerusalem. It was the, the shoot of Jesse, the, the branch of, of David. And so I think we're right to go back and see that that connection there. Out of this root of Jesse, out of this new stump that God is going to plant, out of that grows a people in union with that Messiah, with that Lord. And in union with him, they find all of these blessings. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. So it ends with this just a description of innumerable blessings that that God is going to make his people prosperous and fruitful, and they will endure and live forevermore in a place of righteousness and peace. And I think it's very interesting, isn't it? The way that he ends this particular prophecy. He says, in its time, I will do this swiftly. How is God bringing this to fruition? Well, again, I think we can see that there are elements of this passage that are fulfilled right away when they come back from exile. That. That Jerusalem is restored. That there are there is wealth coming back to Jerusalem. There is the wealth of the nations coming back to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. Uh, there is glory when Jesus steps foot in the temple. So there are there are, there is an element of fulfillment in more the near term, but there's still an unfolding of this fulfillment that will not reach its climax until the end. And so we're in this time of waiting for that moment when God says it's now time. It's now time to bring this to completion. And he sends his son, Jesus back again and the trumpet blows and Jesus descends in the sky and he calls us up to be with him and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And we enjoy a time of peace and and glory in the kingdom of the Lord. Um, what a great thing to look forward to. But in the meantime, we have to wait for in its time because the Lord is in control of that. But when he, when he brings that time, he will accomplish it. It will come to fruition and we will enjoy it with God's people of all ages, the people of, uh, in the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as well as the people of our time and even future whenever God does this. God's people of all ages gathered together in the new holy city of Jerusalem where only righteousness and peace will dwell.